just want to do God's will. The kind of revolution that the world needs is a Christian revolution. If you want a miracle, you've got to expect it to happen. You're the recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and you rejoice in that reality. Welcome to Life Today. Good to have you uh, on this Monday. Life Today Live, to distinguish it from the broadcast program, uh, which is on if you're watching broadcast these days. But Good to have you. We're going to talk about something a little different. I've not done this. I don't do a lot of biographies uh, on the program, not because any special reason, uh, but I don't know that we've ever had one of, of someone who was contemporary, someone who's living today. And so this will be a little bit interesting thing. You might have heard the name Tim Keller, Timothy Keller. Uh, I've, you'll see quotes from him in different places. He's one of those that I wasn't familiar with, but I kept seeing people quote him, and I'm like, well, this is good. Who is who is this guy? Well, I'm going to learn a lot along with you today because there's a book that uh, comes out in a couple of weeks. Uh, I've actually got a hard copy of it already, so you can pre-order it if you're interested, uh, on Timothy Keller. And it's uh, it's a interesting one. It's a little bit different angle. You're going to hear about it. The author of that book is a gentleman named Colin Hansen. And Colin is the editor-in-chief of something you may have heard of or read called the Gospel Coalition at thegospelcoalition.org. He also does the Gospel Bound podcast. And so this will be an interesting one. Chat is open. Uh, Alicia Loretta, anybody else wants to jump in if you're watching us live, if you watch this later in the replay, always love to read your comments. Colin, good to have you on Life Today. Oh, I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad to be talking about this subject with you. So this is an interesting one. Uh, this, what, what, Walk us through some of this, because this is I don't know that I've seen this before. Well, you know, you don't normally when you're thinking about a biography, you're thinking about somebody from history, and you're looking with this big picture assessment of the influence that they had, the difference that they made in the world. But Tim Keller is a different kind of person. Thank God he's still with us today. Um, he does have uh, stage four pancreatic cancer. And that really was the impetus for jumping in on this book. Because one of the things about writing a biography down the road is that you want to get in the mind of that person. What was he or she thinking? Why did they do this? Why, why did they not do that? What was their intent with this? And sometimes you think, well, if I could just go back and ask them, and maybe if I could ask their family members or their colleagues or the people who knew them best, maybe that, that would that would bring some clarity there. Well, that's what I decided to go <laughs> ahead and do at Tim Keller's invitation and at the invitation of, of my publisher. They said, well, why don't we just go to those people and let's not talk about the difference that he's made with his life because that's that's still to be determined mm. in a lot of different ways. We don't know if he'll be here tomorrow or 10 years from now or, or how long we'll have and what else he'll accomplish. We can look back. And one thing that's unique about Tim Keller, he is totally open about all of his different sources. He's always quoting someone else. He's always talking about some book that he's read. This is in conversations. This is in his sermons. I tell you, in preaching classes, they tell you not to do that you know, because you get people confused with, with people that they've never heard of before. But Tim breaks that mold. He does this all the time. So this entire book is focused on what did he learn from C.S. Lewis? Why does he love J.R.R. Tolkien so much? What, what did he learn from Elizabeth Elliot as one of his professors in seminary? 
how did Kathy Keller become one of the last people to ever write C.S. Lewis and then go on to be published with by Elizabeth Elliot and become wife to Tim Keller? Mm. So we could go on and on with that, but that's what that's the unique angle that I just never seen anybody quite do this kind of thing before. Uh, just for for our own sake, how's he doing today these days? Well, I I would say as well as you possibly can with stage four pancreatic cancer. The the treatments continue, and they've had quite a bit of success. Uh, you know, we're years into this process yeah, yeah. with him, so already that's a pretty amazing miracle. And I would say at a spiritual level, having known Tim since 2007, um, this is the most hopeful and encouraged and um, positive, I think, in many ways that I've ever seen him. There seems to be a kind of personal spiritual revival going on, but that's consistent with how I have known him. He's always somebody who's pressing further into that experience of God's grace in his life. So even though it's been terribly discouraging with the physical health, it's been pretty positive on the spiritual health. I'm guessing that he's probably not the type of a person who likes to talk about himself. Yeah, I think that's one of the major reasons I took this approach in the book. <laughs> and so one of the things that might surprise people is they'll think, okay, well, how did he write this book? We probably sat down with Tim and Tim probably explained everything. Right. Tim and I didn't talk about this book at any depth until I was well into the drafting of the final product mainly because well, I knew he didn't really have time to do that. He was working on some other projects, but because sometimes we're not the best source on our own lives. Just think about your own life. There's certain things that you could learn about asking you, but what we'd really want to know is talk to your wife or talk to your, your mentor, or your best friend from your twenties, or talk to your sister. Who's the only remaining family member. That's what I did with, with Tim Keller talking to the, the best man at his wedding, his sister about what it was like in their home growing up and talking about um, just people from all those different stages. They're friends in seminary. I got a whole packet of information from one of their best friends, uh, Tim and Kathy from seminary at Gordon Conwell in Massachusetts. And so, yeah, that was, it was a, it was a fun process, but yeah, only later could I then go back to Tim and say, Hey, this is what so-and-so said. What do you think of that? And uh, that was turned out. I think it was a better way to go about the book. Interesting. Uh, um, one thing I've always been curious about is for anybody, uh, but for him as well, it, it, when you decide to go, you know, start a church in New York City. I mean, that's that's not an easy place. Just <laughs> I mean, from everything spiritually, but even like financially. I mean, it's expensive no. to be there. That's. Um, I'm just curious what led him in 1989 to start Redeemer Church and was it in Manhattan? Is that where it is? Uh, that's right in Manhattan. So on the sort of the Upper East Side, they have branches downtown, West Side, and then planted churches all over the metro area in the city. Um, that was a major part of this book. And I think this book is probably the first and most definitive account of the launch of this church. You've got to go back to 1989. You're not far away from New York City being a byword for a lot of crime, sure. uh, a lot of people leaving the city. But the 1980s were also the time of a huge economic boom and a lot of people moving into the city and making a lot of money at young ages. But there were very few evangelical churches in Manhattan itself. The, the borough situation was fairly, very, fairly different, but inside Manhattan, you could basically count them on one hand. And this is what's amazing. 
You know, Billy Graham's most famous crusade was 1957 in New York City. In the 19th century, New York was the Protestant capital, the evangelical capital of America. That's how much things had changed in just uh, under a century uh, from 1989. And so I think there was a sense, especially for Presbyterians, there's a long time connection like in Tim's denomination going back to that area as well. I think there was a thought of if we're going to reach people for Christ, it's going to have to be in cities. It's going to have to be, you know, start in New York um, because that's kind of the place that nobody thinks you can do that in. But it turned out uh, the Lord was working a revival there at the time. There were all these young people making a ton of money, but it wasn't fulfilling them. Campus Crusade for Christ was really active on the ground there at the time. And all these things came together and Redeemer became, I mean, a 5,000 person megachurch in New York, which certainly nobody thought was possible <laughs> and was one of the largest, most influential churches, of course, on that fateful day of 9-11-2001. Yeah, well, there's a lot that have, has happened in that time. One thing, though, on the founding that you pointed out that I thought was interesting yeah was that he didn't sort of advertise, if you will, to yeah. Christians. Uh, yeah. and, and maybe that was just very practical, because. but I think it was more calling. He wasn't there to pull the people out of the few churches that existed. He was there to bring new people into Christianity. Yeah, that's right. And, and most church planters say that, but it's easier said <laughs> than done. I think one thing is that there just weren't many evangelical Christians at the time in the place. And second, for those churches that were there, they might have had more in common with a church, you know, where I am right now in Birmingham, Alabama, than the kind of culture that, um, you know, say a Southern Baptist church in Alabama versus the kind of culture that somebody who was secular in New York was living amid. Mm -hmm. So the thought was, we can't tune this church in its aesthetics and things like that, the theology is thoroughly evangelical, but we can't make this feel and sound like a church anywhere else. It really needs to feel and sound like New York, like New Yorkers. And that was that was a totally new thing. And the whole thought was a place where Christians would want to bring their non-Christian friends and they would be intrigued and they would feel like they could ask questions and they could engage. And so that's why they didn't do a lot of publicity, because in some ways, the more Christians they brought from other churches, well, it would, first of all, that's competitive in the kingdom, but also it might set the wrong tone of what they were trying to do and who they were trying to reach with this new work in New York. Yeah, interesting. All right. The book is simply called Timothy Keller, uh, The Spiritual and Intellectual Foundation. Uh, it is soon to be available, but uh, right now you can pre-order. If you go to timothykellerbook.com, you could pre-order the book if you're interested, uh, and you'll get some extra goodies. I'll let Colin tell you about that. Um, <laughs> but this is a different kind of book, a different look, uh, a different way to look at someone uh, who is still making a difference and who over, wow, what would it be, three over three decades now has mm -hmm. been in a, a very tough area but making a significant difference. It's a, it's. I think it's interesting for well, gosh, if you're a young pastor or you're new in the yeah. ministry, what a great read. But also just to look at what what is working for the kingdom in our culture today. Uh, maybe what can we learn just in our interactions with those around us? So very interesting. I, I want you, uh, Colin, to 
walk us through some of the pivotal moments in your mind as you were putting this book together. Well, I don't think any human being ever has gotten more out of three years of seminary than Tim Keller <laughs> did. It's just amazing all the things that he learned. I had several chapters on classes and professors and just life-changing learning mm -hmm. from his life. I wanted people to go back and feel the, the late 1960s, 1970s. As a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, many people might not naturally think of Tim Keller as a product of the Jesus movement, hmm. but he was. Through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Bucknell, his conversion was in the spring of 1970. Think about the height of the Vietnam protests. Think about the Kent State National Guard shootings. That's when he was becoming a Christian. And then think about all the, the rise of evangelical feminism and all of the different transformations of the sexual revolution. That was the 1970s. Yeah. And by the time he gets to his first job, I mean, he, he can't, can't find a job because he joins this brand new denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, led by major figures that we've come to know, like R.C. Sproul, um, D. James Kennedy, people like that. Um, he was just a young pastor, and so he takes a church in rural uh, Hopewell, Virginia, kind of the Richmond area there in central Virginia. There's only two people in the church who have any college education. They're both elementary school teachers. He's got members of the church whose dads fought in the Civil War. He's got very few members who you know, get beyond sixth grade education at the time. He's trying to translate all this stuff. We think of Tim Keller as this intellectual figure, but he's got to figure out how to do this with 1,500 sermons over nine years. Back then, you're preaching Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday as well. So that's how you learn how to be a pastor. And there's no Christian counselors in town either. So you can go all the way through that to his years at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, learning from figures such as Jack Miller about how grace changes everything. Jumping forward, of course, then to, I think, likely the most pivotal moment in the church's history, as well as in our understanding of Tim Keller as a public figure, and that's the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. Um, it obviously changed our country. It changed our world. It changed Redeemer Presbyterian Church on the spot because they added hundreds and hundreds of members and were absolutely overwhelmed with not only the support from other churches, but also with just the spiritual needs and despair and hardships of that time. So a lot of different turning points. And, and you're still, even at 9-11, seven years before he wrote some of his best-selling books, 2008. That's interesting. Is there anything that you learned that maybe surprised you? Well, I, I knew a little bit about Tim's brother. Uh, I knew that he had a younger brother. I knew that his younger brother had died of AIDS. Uh, so you also get a look at the AIDS crisis of the 1980s and 1990s. I didn't know uh, the story about his brother coming to faith in hospice. Or um, I'll leave a little bit of intrigue on this one, but um, about the sermon that Tim Keller preached uh, for his younger brother. To give, give people a hint, it was a sign of what for many people would become Tim Keller's most famous message. But from what I saw, first preached at his brother's, his brother's funeral. Oh, wow. Oh, that's tough. You know, I, I, it's easy. He's, he's been criticized uh, for various things um, over the years by people from 
sort of the areas where you and I live, <laughs> the Bible yeah. Belt kind of areas. <laughs> that's true. And and I don't think that's entirely fair. In fact, there was a recent criticism that I saw. It's not in your book or anything, but I don't think. But where he's a registered Democrat, and people from you know my area of the country are like, how could you do that? And he's like, it's the only way to make any difference in New York because <laughs> you're not going to, you know, the Democrats win. So if we want to influence the politics, you influence the party that's going to win. And I, I went, you know, it's very practical. makes sense. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing that there's been a little bit of noise in his life from sort of the outside world because he's ministering in a different area. No. Yes, the same gospel. Yes, the same convictions. But the approach in Birmingham, Alabama, or Fort Worth, mm -hmm. Texas, it's just mm -hmm. ne necessarily different than the approach in Manhattan. Is, yeah. is, does that come through in any of what you see with him? It is. I think, I think people will be surprised as they read this book by how conventionally evangelical <laughs> Tim Keller is. Um, in many ways, when you think about the so-called neo-evangelicals, the Billy Grahams of the world, what they hoped for was that the gospel would go to these major cities and at the center of American culture. And Tim Keller, in many ways, represents exactly doing that. In mm -hmm. in one of the, with, you know, we're talking about the PCA here, there's not a lot of wiggle room in that theology there. So you're a, con a convictionally confirmed, confessional evangelical in New York City. But you're exactly right. There are different concerns in the different places. But I think people would be surprised if they actually sat down and looked and and could see all the I mean, when they look at this book to just see how normally and basically evangelical, if you're somebody who knows InterVarsity Christian Fellowships history or ever reads J.I. Packer or John Stott, or those are the major influences on his life. I think the only major difference that might makes that might help explain this to people is Tim did see in New York City that in these very secular places we need to focus as Christians more on what separates us from non-Christians than what separates Christians from other Christians. Oh wow, yeah. That I think is probably a major difference between Bible Belt dynamics <laughs> and New York City and probably explains a lot of why people we're never satisfied by him not doing more on the so-called secondary issues yeah. because he did focus a lot on the major issues. Well, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that we couldn't learn a little bit from him on that because yeah. if, if you've seen what I've seen over your lifetime, yeah. sometimes the fighting over secondary or even what I would call tertiary sure. issues, yeah. it's a little exhausting at times. But to go back and, and look yeah. at the very basics. Uh, I think that's refreshing. Well, just imagine this. Imagine you're on a mission trip. I don't care where you are in the world and you meet a Christian and you're just so excited. You're like, wow, I'm, I'm here on the other side of the world and I'm meeting a Christian. We both have the Holy Spirit. We both revere God's word. We both worship God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't immediately jump to What's your view on the millennium? What's your view, you know, what's your view on, on predestination or something like that? We don't think that way. I got to say, New York in many ways has more in common with a lot of other places around the world in terms of the number of Christians yeah. than it does with the heart of Texas or the heart of Alabama. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, we've been, we've been criticized sometime in the mission field 
uh, for working with Catholic organizations. But it's um, man, when you're when you're over in South Sudan or something, and right. you're you're trying to set up a, a medical clinic or get food right. to, to refugees, and a Catholic comes alongside of you, we're, we don't we don't care, man. We're like, hey. Yeah. You love Jesus? You know, you're here in Jesus' name? <laughs> Excellent. Let's go feed these people. And the people Let's getting the it. food, they don't care either. So it <laughs> is kind of refreshing, I think, sometimes to get back to the simplicity of the gospel, which is every tribe, every nation into the kingdom. Uh, what do you hope people that read your book take away from this? I hope people will be inspired to build their own set of influences. The, the way that I began to think about the book was something that I learned from Tim and he described the way that leaders often develop their convictions like rings on a tree. And I thought that's such a good way of thinking about his life. So I used it to organize the book, mm -hmm. but also what the rest of us can do as well. We, we keep these core convictions, but over time we keep adding, we keep maturing, we keep building, we keep growing. And I hope that people will kind of see a trajectory here that says, when I'm in my 70s and I'm retired from ministry or retired from work or whatever it is, I want to still be pressing for a deeper prayer life, a deeper communion with God. I want to be mentoring younger generations. I want to be reading books. I want to be reading books trying to learn mm. because we're going to be active in eternity. We're not just going to be passive. We're going to be active in eternity. So sort of leaning in on continuing to grow our whole lives. And it doesn't have to be the same influences as Tim Keller, though I hope some people pick up some, some books and some names from here and dive deeper. But just that concept of always growing, always learning, always seek, seeking deeper experiences with God. I hope that's inspirational for yeah. people as they read the book, and especially for leaders in the church who need that that spiritual nourishment to continue to minister their whole lives. I think I've, I've read most, if not all of C.S. Lewis. Is this going to, is your book going to make me want to read some Jonathan Edwards? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> some Jonathan Edwards, but I mean, people like Ed Clowney, uh, people who have a huge influence on the church, but we don't see much of today or go back and read the, you know, go back and read Tolkien's uh, trilogy again on the Lord of the Rings and, and see what, what emerges from there or go check out his his other work um, and all sorts of different things. But that's what a good a good teacher will help you see things that you didn't you didn't see were there. So I'm hopeful that as Tim becomes a conduit for the rest of us to go back and look at others, we see, oh, I didn't get that out of that. I should maybe go back and check it out again. I like it. All right. This is the website right here if you want to pre-order the book. It is timothykellerbook.com, and you'll get that book right there. Uh, and I mentioned some goodies, Colin. Colin, tell us the goodies if they pre-order before the February 7 release. You jump in right now, and you'll get not only the first several chapters of the book and the audio book, but also I put together a list of 25 books that'll help you to understand Tim Keller. And Tim himself put together a list and said, these are the 10 most influential books that were published in my lifetime. So you get all that. You'll also get some videos of Tim talking with different leaders around the world, um, kind of critiquing his work, working through that uh, from his work, Center Church, a great textbook for church leaders. So all sorts of good stuff. It's all there at timothykellerbook.com. Very cool. I'm an audio book guy, so I might have to check that out, even though I've got mm -hmm. a hardback copy here. Uh, <laughs> quick question from the audience. Uh, she wants to know if uh, Redeemer Church was one that uh, a lot of the first responders for 9-11 went to. 
No, not a lot of the first responders there. But the, in fact, there were only three members, I think, that Tim had mentioned mm -hmm. from the church. But it was a lot of the people who's a lot of people who lived downtown who couldn't go back to their homes for months. Mm -hmm. Everyone was basically traumatized True. by what they'd seen, by what they'd experienced. Um, it was it actually, in fact, it was a pastor from Oklahoma City who called Tim Keller and said, however bad you think it is, this is going to linger for a long time. You remember the Oklahoma City bombing, of oh, course. Yeah. And that became influential in Tim's thinking there, because no matter where you were, I mean, a lot of the people were not necessarily the first responders, but they might have been working in those towers. How many people lost friends, oh, neighbors, loved ones? Everybody. Yeah, pretty much everybody there knew someone uh, who was impacted directly or, or over the long trauma period. So very interesting. All right, you want to read up on that? You're going to have to pick up the book, uh, mm -hmm. Timothy Keller by Colin Hansen. Uh, Colin, anything you want to add before I let you go? I appreciate your time, and this is, this is interesting. Yeah, well, it's going to be a new concept, but I hope everybody, no matter where you are, will be able to learn something from it and be inspired as well. And I will take you out with a little uh, music. Featuring one of Tim Keller's influences, Elizabeth Elliot. Always. <laughs> check out the book, check out the website, timothykellerbook.com, and come back. We'll see you again here next time on Life Today Live. He has given us the will to choose to come, come, to come, choose to bend our necks, to choose to bend our necks, and to choose to learn. It is always possible to do the will of God. Nobody can prevent you from doing the will of God.